0: Standard Issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. I thought we were just going to objectify Paul Newman for 25 minutes. (laughs) Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 267 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I've started taking relationship advice from a man who calls himself the Cat Daddy. Is that your husband? (laughs) (laughs) No, but I'm going to suggest it to him. I call Gary Grubby Papa. I won't go into reasons why, but it's not sexual. Please don't. No, it's not not sexual. I just did a bit of sick in my mouth. (laughs) Grubby Hannah. No, it's a guy called Jackson Galaxy. I've mentioned him before in the mail out, actually. Do you think that's his real name? He's American, so it could be. It could well be. I once saw a, in an American airport a last call for someone called Randy Balthazar, so anything's possible.
1: Yeah. I know someone whose brother is called Randy Wacker.
2: <laughs> ah. True story. Obama used to have a speechwriter who was called Randy Bumgarden.
0: This is amazing. <laughs> I want to start taking relationship advice from Randy Bumgarden, but I don't know <laughs> whether, I don't know whether it'll be the cat relationship advice I'm actually seeking, which is what the cat daddy is providing me. What's he giving you? Really interesting. So the tensions between Clarky Cat and Mr. Trousers. Yeah. There's a massive age gap. There's an even bigger energy gap. It's been a lot of hissing, mostly mm-hmm. from Clarky and Mr. Trousers going, I gotta get your tail, which is sort of cute, but also like really pissing Clarky Cat off. So the suggestion from Jackson Galaxy, real name, was to get them to eat together. So they associate each other's company with a positive thing, with food. And kind of, touch wood, appears to be working. So uh, just a big thank you to the cat daddy. That's interesting
2: because eating together is the thing that my cats do least well. They'll sleep together, they'll play together. When they eat together, it all gets a bit arsy. Mm. Yeah. Well,
0: I'm lucky at the moment in that Mr. Trousers is not big enough to get onto Clarkie's unit and he eats on a high unit right. because obviously, otherwise, Elsie used to eat Clarky's food. So Clarkie's on his unit still and Mr. Trousers is on the floor, but they can smell each other and they can see each other while they're eating. Mm. And we've had four meals now where they've just eaten, which is great. That's nice. Thank you, the cat daddy, a.k.a. Randy Bumgard. Is it Randy Bumgarden or Randy Bumgarden? Bumgarden.
2: Now I think about it, I don't think he was a speechwriter. I think he was something to do with that. He worked at the American embassy or he worked at the British embassy. Is it, He definitely exists. Randy I Bumgarden. I think that's the least interesting definitely part exists. of that story, to be honest. <laughs> it's called Randy Bumgarden. He <laughs> should have all of the jobs.
1: <laughs>
2: I am Hannah Dunleavy. And I'm thinking of starting a sub stack. And I reckon i would just say it here because I think... You two and the people listening are probably the people most interested in yeah. that. Because uh-huh. when I mentioned it to my family,
1: they seem mostly ambivalent.
0: Did they know what a substack was?
1: That's going to be my question. No, I know what a substack is, sort of, but what what is it?
0: Oh, it's basically a newsletter. Mm-hmm.
2: But then it has got like a Patreon sort of element mm-hmm. tied into yeah. it so you get it all in the same place rather than say i'm writing this newsletter and if you click on this you can go over to this site and give me some money if you'd like to see more of it
0: i will give you money to read your substack hannah if it is called the adventures of randy Bumgarden."
2: garden <laughs> i mean to be honest the main reason i haven't set one up yet is because i want to give it a good name and i could come up with a good come on name
0: now but... i think we've solved that yeah. little mystery <laughs>
1: That's a very good name and I think it will bring a lot of boys to the yard. So <laughs> I think they'll be disappointed when they see what the content is.
0: <laughs> That's their problem. A couple,
2: <laughs> a couple of towns that I know, there are a couple of really interesting stories on the boil and no local media to cover them. Or certainly no local media to cover them in any kind of depth. Mm-hmm. Obviously, The Guardian and The Independent don't realise the rest of the country exists. They're only really interested in sort of London stuff. So, yeah. Anyway,
1: more news as it happens. I'm Jen Offord and I have a shiny new sewing machine. I have no idea how it works.
0: I've seen a picture of it. It does look complicated.
1: There's a hell of a lot of buttons and feet, different feet attachments that you can put on it that do different things, threads in a completely different way. I mean, this is really quite dull for anyone who's not interested in sewing machines. All you need to know is that, like for me, this is a lovely time, but also a confusing time.
0: Mm. What is the difference in having a fancier sewing machine?
1: Well, because you can buy different feet attachments for like basic sewing machines, but uh, you can do stuff like it'll thread itself and things like that, which is like, fine, you can do that yourself, but it's annoying. And it like sometimes they just are a bit smoother. And you can do stuff with the speed of the sewing. So if you're like me and you hate speed in any context, <laughs> uh, you can put like a special thing on it, a little tortoise setting that means it won't go, even if you accidentally like put your foot down on the gas, as it were, it'll only go to a certain speed. Like it won't, cruise like, run control away with itself.
0: in a car? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's interesting. Thank you. That was good information. You're welcome. Coming up, theatre maker Elizabeth Gunawan talks to me about dark clowning, mail-order brides, cultural stereotypes and her award-winning play, Unforgettable Girl.
2: I talked to standard issue fave Helen Lewis about the second series of her Radio 4 show, Great Wives, and on an entirely unrelated note, that is not sarcasm, about the 2024 US election.
1: In Jenny Off the Blocks, it's World Cup fever, as well as the Cycling World Championships, and in Rated or Dated, a melodramatic masterpiece and the most effective contraceptive the world may have ever seen, as we watch 1958's Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. But first, shouldn't we
2: all just have a little nap instead? I'm in. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. (laughs) Cue sting.
0: Bush. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we know which way we're driving. Even Jen. Yeah, and she's not even officially passed her test yet. Or indeed, unofficially passed her test yet. There's no passing of test yet. But apparently, there has been an uptick of 13% driving the wrong way on motorways, Hannah. What? That is terrifying. I mean, when I worked for my papers, we
2: did have a couple of incidents when it happened. You know, stories about it. And as a rule, there were people who were very, very old and really probably shouldn't have been on the road or people who were not from the UK and therefore had gone into some sort of muscle memory and just joined at a junction where they would if they were at home and they have driven, you know, Americans used to do it quite a lot around here, up at the air bases. But yeah, I mean, 30% rise. I don't know what
0: explains that. Apparently, it's drunk driving, and also, sat
2: is to blame. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, because it does sometimes tell you to do things that are weird. Like when I was driving down the motorway and it said, turn right. How? Yes. <laughs> if it's okay with you, I'm just going to ignore that and carry on doing what I was doing. More people should be like you, Hannah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a rule. Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> on that note, I have a quick question for you. Okay. Do I look like a lesbian and or your nan? (laughs) Now, I'm not going to wait for an answer because it doesn't really matter what that answer is. I'd not be insulted if he said I look like a lesbian. And I might be insulted by the nan part, depending on how old the person who said it was. But in truth, I probably do look like at least one person's lesbian nan and I am good with
0: that. I think I look like at least eight people's lesbian nan for sure. It's fine. Why do I bring this up? Well, because of a viral video that
2: circulated on social media last week, in which half a dozen police officers arrested a highly distressed 16-year-old autistic girl in her own house for telling a female officer exactly this. Have you seen it, Mickey? That video is
0: so upsetting. It's awful.
2: Yeah, it's the bit where you can audibly hear her hissing
0: herself. That I yeah, think is. Yeah. yeah, she's obviously in such distress.
2: Now, I'm always reluctant to take a viral video as the sole source of information on a story, but here, it appears, it might actually show what it is claiming to show. And if you listen very carefully, you can hear the Met letting out a huge sigh of relief that their officers didn't look like the absolute worst for one day. Yep. Public reaction to the video, in which the teenager is hiding in a corner and hitting herself in the face, was so strong that by Friday... West Yorkshire Police, that's the force in question, have put out a statement adding what it called context to the video, including saying the teen had been picked up after drinking in Leeds City Centre. Not sure what we're supposed to make of that, since I'm sure a whole load of us have been pissed at 16. It doesn't make you an intrinsically bad person. Agreed. The statement from Assistant Chief Con Oz Khan, which was put out as a virtually unreadable graphic, has since been deleted from social media it contained the following statements. Quote, West Yorkshire Police takes its responsibilities around the welfare of young people taken into custody and around neurodiversity very seriously. I feel like that should have one of those CNN-style claimed without evidence around that. Uh-huh. Given the female officer's response to the teen's mother's statement that her daughter is autistic was, I don't care.
0: Oh! Oh, oh, it's it's awful. It's so awful. The statement added that she had been
2: arrested on suspicion of a homophobic public order offence, adding, quote, We also maintain that our officers and staff should not have to face abuse while working to keep our communities safe. In a second statement, also put out on Friday, on the same horribly hard-to-read graphic, Khan said, quote, We recognise the significant level of public concern that this incident has generated and we have moved swiftly to fully review the evidence in the criminal investigation which has led to the decision to take no further action. That's no further action against the girl, to be clear. Without preempting the outcome of the ongoing review of the circumstances by our Professional Standards Directorate, we would like to assure people that we will take on board any lessons to be learned from this incident We do appreciate the understandable sensitivities around incidents involving young people and neurodiversity. And we are genuinely committed to developing how we respond to these often very challenging situations.
0: (laughs) I'm laughing not at the content of the statement, but at the fact that, you know, Hannah and I are, and this might surprise some of you, we are professionals. So when we come (laughs) to read out other people's words, you, you read them as straight as you can. (laughs) But, I mean, you were right, Anna, to make that sarcastic as fuck (laughs) because I don't believe that I am reassured West Yorkshire Police, not in the slightest, that you are going to learn any lessons. Now, as the man
2: said, without wanting to prejudge the results of that review, I'd like to say a few things. Firstly, if the only violence a teenager is doing is to themselves, it does not take six officers to arrest her. Secondly, If you think that being told you look like someone's lesbian nan is abuse, you might want to examine your own homophobia before accusing other people of it. Hell yes. And finally, this is precisely why I've not been 100% in support of hate crime legislation, because it is exceptionally easy to abuse.
0: And not the first time the West Yorkshire Police Force have been guilty of it as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know... Hamza Youssef wants to bring in a hate crime bill in Scotland that will mean you could be found guilty of saying things in your own home.
0: Well, this is kind of like the girl, if they do find... Oh, they're not going to know that it was a public order offence. It was in her house, so it can't be a public order offence.
2: Interestingly, the first statement that they put out, the one that was deleted, claimed that incident happened outside the house, but without being able to see the police body cam footage. We don't yet know that.
0: Mm, Interesting that they've not released that to back themselves up. But I, I mean, I don't know if they can. Oh, they can definitely
2: release. Yeah. I mean, she's 16. There's going to be all sorts of things about what they can and can't say anyway. I don't know. It's interesting. But honestly, if you think I look like your lesbian nan, you know, feel free.
0: Yeah, totally. And also your nan is hot. (laughs) <laughs> I mean that literally, uh, we're all sweating <laughs> It's bleak out there in world news, Hannah I know you know that, you just bleaked us So thank you very much But there is more bleak Cheese, butter and bread are up in price More than 30% in the past year. That's years. like 100% of my diet oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah's cheese sandwiches are up in price By more than 30% in the past year, years And this food price inflation does, of course Disproportionately affect Hannah And low-income sure. <laughs> households more poor, desperate people have drowned trying to cross seas to safer havens. Maui is being devastated by fire, while Japan is bracing to be underwater. In Argentina, a man who thinks the climate crisis is a lie and wants to sale of human organs to be legalised is frontrunner in the country's primary hey! elections. And in Brussels, someone has stolen a massive metal head. Yeah, it's a whole load of no thanks and fuck this. And so... I have decided to bring a bonus good news story to the Bus Telegraph. What? I know! And it's a good news story for women! Yes, please, and hello, Original Sounds Collective, a campaign to bring more women into the Notting Hill Carnival's sound system scene. Lynette Kamala, who at 14 became one of the first female DJs at the Carnival, has partnered with Guinness to support up-and-coming sound system operators, DJs and producers, hoping to break onto the scene via a new grassroots mentoring program. Though there are loads more female DJs than they used to be, there is, according to Kamala, still an issue around access and lack of support. People feel like they're perhaps in isolation, she said. They're feeling like they're the only ones doing this or feeling this way and really want to learn more about it. The original Sounds Collective mentorship programme will include bespoke training, experiences and access to new equipment with mentors including Carnival Legends, Dub Plate Pearl and Ella Davison Smith. I've said that like I know who they are, but I've got to be honest with you, <laughs> I do not. I'm not a cool person. The mentees for the first round have been selected, but the programme is going to open up again soon for prospective applicants to apply. Make some noise! What, me? Yeah, go on. Hey! Oh, I feel like I've failed it as a DJ there, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Mm. Mick, how do you feel about foregoing a good news story since you already bought us one and having a wee power nap instead? Uh, hell yes, 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 yes. Great, cue interlude music. Google's interlude music. <laughs> inserts. Welcome back. Feel refreshed? Oh, yeah, I love a nap. Hooray. Because researchers have been saying for years that there are all sorts of benefits to a cat nap including claims that it lowers your blood pressure and that it boosts memory and creativity. And for those who don't know, Mickey and I used to have something we (laughs) called nap club, club, where we'd just go for a little sleep in the afternoon, not together, in our own locations. Hannah,
0: you've broken the first rule of nap club, which is to never talk about nap. Oh, no, I'm getting that very confused with bike club. Oh, no, no, I've broken the first rule of
2: bike club. Oh, God, carry on, please, rescue me. But now a study by Sleep Health has found a potentially causal link between brain volume and how regularly you lie down on the sofa and have a little drool on the arm rest.
0: I'm so glad velvet is wiped clean.
2: <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, there's a lot more research to be done on that. But if you can potentially slow the rate of decline of your brain by literally doing nothing, <laughs> I am all for it. Up with this sort of thing.
0: Agreed. Lay down with this sort of thing. Absolutely. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week when we look back on the dreams little girls were sold and go, she's pretty much dead. Definitely unconscious. And he's he's kissing her. Stop it. Now, if you haven't listened to all of Dunleavy Does Disney, in which Hannah measured Disney's old films by today's feminist standards and found most of them sorely lacking, if yeah. not downright dodgy, then you've missed out. They're in our yeah. back catalogue. Not yourself out. The story of Snow White, a sweet, beautiful young girl who likes nothing better than to sing at woodland creatures while doing housework for seven small miners, <laughs> as in they dig for gold rather than they're under 16, is a total <laughs> classic and was Disney's first full-length traditionally animated feature film back in 1937. It also features a wicked queen slash stepmother, so aghast she's not the fairest of them all anymore. She poisons an apple that puts Snow White into a death-like slumber, from which, in Disney's 1937 version, she can only be roused by love's first kiss. And come on, Walt's not wrong. Who doesn't want love's first kiss to happen when you're comatose? and therefore can't consent. Fair to say, it did not fare well on Tum Levy. Does Disney. Uh, less high ho more hell no. Ideas such as beauty equals whiteness, or girls need men to save them, or that boys are welcome to kiss unconscious women, quite rightly don't fly anymore. So how on earth is Disney planning on making its forthcoming live-action remake of Snow White palatable to modern tastes? I mean, to be fair, I would ask that of a lot
2: of Disney films that they're (laughs) remaking at the moment, but this is perhaps one of the more egregious, yeah.
0: I couldn't agree more with that statement, Hannah. Uh, They have cast a pretty gobby Snow White, which is a good start. She's got some lines. Well, I mean... That's incredible. We're off off camera now. Uh, I mean it as a compliment, to be clear, as actor Rachel Zegler, who is the new Snow White, is slagging off the old Snow White to anyone who'll listen. It's no longer 1937, Zegler told Variety quite correctly. Uh, She's not going to be saved by the prince and she's not going to be dreaming about true love. She's dreaming about becoming the leader she knows she can be and the leader that her late father told her that she could be if she was fearless, fair, brave and true. So it's just a really incredible story for young people everywhere to see themselves in. Now, is this actually still Snow White then? I don't don't know. I I mean, Snow White was incredibly short.
2: I think it was only about an hour long. So to put it out, you've got to add something. Yeah, you do have to add something. So maybe that's why she
0: gets to talk. But I I don't know if it is Snow White. And no one knows because no one has seen it yet. But just as predictably as night follows day, people are not happy with Zegla having an opinion. And while I personally think that every female character that's ever existed seemingly being rewritten as a fearless leader forging her own path who don't need no man is getting a little bit boring and about as homogenous as the docile homebody spending all her time yearning for love of yore. I also think the amount of vitriol that has been directed at Zegler for basically saying a film made in 1937 is a bit dated is fucked up and sexist. I mean, I quite agree. It's nearly 100 years old. I mean, it'd be weird if it wasn't
2: dated. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly that. Yeah. Yeah it seems to me that the people who would be defending in this scenario the people that would be defending this are probably you know angry men who don't like how having an opinion i can't
0: imagine they watch that much snow white of the original do you know what i mean i absolutely see why you would say that and no you're not totally wrong obviously there are some angry men going what's this a fight where i can slug off some women i'm in but right. also, it is. There's a lot of women going, "Oh, but you know, Snow White is amazing, and it should stay the same." And you know, a lot of those women still. But want it has love. stayed the same. You could, yeah, you, you can, can still, still watch, watch that the one. one. Exactly, Hannah. Exactly. Get on Twitter. Tell them. Put them straight. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to tell them that.
2: Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by Helen Lewis, author, journalist, and the person who's taught me more about the love life of the Crankies than I ever wanted to know. Welcome to Standard Issue, Helen. Thank you for having me.
3: Um, And I'm sorry
2: about the Crankies. (laughs) I don't know how I missed this when it was in the news, but because I was listening to a preview of season two of Great Wives, which begins this week, and will be available to listen to on Radio 4 and BBC Sounds, you talk quite a lot about it. Yeah, so they gave an interview in 2011 in which they said
3: in their younger days they had been swingers and had been quite the pair of goers. I believe that (laughs) Ian used to run naked through... The housing estates. And they once had sex on a boat that was in the channel. And there's a whole bit where they're like, oh, we nearly made it all the way to France. We couldn't do that now. Anyway, <laughs> I wanted in the series to talk about particularly creative couples. Mm. And, you know, people always talk about, I don't know, you know, Beyonce and Jay-Z, for example, or, you know, Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Yeah. And I was like, no, you know who I'm going to talk about? I'm mm. going to start this series. It's a Radio for comedy series. I'm going to start with the Crankies. Well done. Because they have been one of the like longest, actually in terms of couples who have worked together, they are probably the success story. They've been together since they were
2: like teenagers. It's, I mean, it's quite sweet, yeah. really. Well, let's start with a definition. What is a great wife in terms of your series, Great Wives? Well, there's been a very
3: long running series on Radio 4 called Great Lives, hosted by Matthew Paris, which is now up to episode, you know, 14 billion or something. I was on it a couple of years ago talking about Catherine de Medici, And the premise being that you pick somebody who has had kind of great success. And I started reading around lots of stuff. And I just think we under, you know, this is part of the project I've been interested in for the last couple of years. We underrate the people around the genius. Mm. Obviously, you need talent to succeed, but you need the right conditions in terms of if you want to make a technological breakthrough, you need to come along in a field at the right time. And that's sort of slightly out of your control. And you need the right social conditions, i.e., you know, you could be the next einstein but if you're living in the middle of a famine or a war then you're not going to be able to put your intelligence to to good use but then the other great alchemical thing is the people around you and i think particularly from the industrial revolution onwards when women began to become literate i think that there are so many people who really benefited from having a wife who was sort of interested in the same things as they were but also willing to do all the secretarial work and it's just this huge huge advantage that men had of a particular class, right, but it's bound up with class, but that almost no women in history have ever had someone who's like, well, I'd love to listen, I'd love to, you know, talk to you about your printmaking business and also learn some of the technical skills required to support you in that. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just traditionally been quite so many husbands that have been up for that.
2: You just want to leap to the assumption that is, you know, the patriarchy. But are there other reasons that wives were traditionally sort of overlooked
3: it's a patriarch in a couple of different ways one is which is you know that there were lots of professional associations universities where you simply couldn't get a job as a woman Marie Curie only became a professor of physics after Pierre died and she sort of essentially inherited his his seat Someone who won two Nobel Prizes, Nobel Prizes in two different disciplines. Even so, nonetheless, the French university system was like, well, OK, I suppose if, you, if we have to. And the same thing happened. And um, there's a great episode of one of Malcolm Bladwell's revisionist history about the fact that the, the Royal Academy lets in one woman early on. And then they kind of go, this didn't work out very well. And it's about a sort of 100 years before they let in another one. So a big part of it is the fact that actually, you know, women were kept out of professional associations, universities, the kind of means of of becoming masters of the craft, whatever it happened to be. But the one thing that they could do is marry somebody who was also interested in it and be the kind of secondary player in that relationship. So you do see, you know, quite a lot of that. And sometimes you see that with the sisters of people. Caroline Herschel, for example, in in astronomy. You know, that if you could be close to somebody who was actually able to fulfil their potential, that was a kind of silver medal. And the other thing that is more contentious, I guess, is whether or not our our women now actually not less ambitious per se, but less willing to bet on themselves in that kind of way that you have to be to achieve something huge. Mm. You know, that kind of overweening self-confidence of a kind of, you know, Napoleon or someone like that, I think is rare among women. And I'm not ever clear on whether or not that's, you know, what percentage of that is hormonal, biological, social, cultural, you know, economic. But I think that has traditionally been slightly rarer because it's a kind of narcissism, isn't it? It's, I'm amazing, And if you are actually amazing, as well as thinking you're amazing, that's the perfect recipe. If you've only got one of them, traditionally, you know, there has been a problem.
2: Yeah. But great wives aren't always wives, are they? Like you you did mention Caroline Herschel, but I mean, there are other examples. There are men who were great wives to great women. But I was thinking about, In the same way that single dads are heroes and single (laughs) mums nobody gives a shit about. Just as an example, the late Duke of Edinburgh, who was constantly, constantly held up as just this absolute paragon of support for his wife. Whereas had the genders been reversed, I can't imagine that the consort to the king would have been praised quite so highly.
3: Yeah, but that's also wrapped up with the fact that it was an offset to the fact that it was also felt to be very humiliating to yeah, be yeah, one step yeah, behind. Point. Yeah. You know, and I think the same thing about Dennis Thatcher. And I, you know, I was working for a while on a screenplay about the 1970s and about politics in the 1970s. And one of the things I thought was really telling about that was you had a whole generation of politicians, female politicians, who were married to men who had fought in the Second World War. And so they'd kind of done the big heroic manly macho thing. When someone was a kind of tank commander, you know, and and came home with various decorations, I feel like it was, you couldn't really kind of go like, lol, what a cuck. Mm. Imagine you like hanging around behind your wife. So they managed to reconfigure a kind of masculinity that was, well, I think a Dennis statue, you know, the kind of like little woman's running around, but I'm just, you know, driving my Jaguar and having a gin and tonic and, you know, because I'm a bit older. So I think that... That pattern is true as well. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's the same thing. One of the episodes is about prime ministers
2: and presidents' wives.
3: Oh, I'm and so how that's glad.
2: The... I'm so glad because I want to talk about Abigail Adams.
3: And how that is the absolute worst job in the world. And basically, no one wants it or has ever wanted it. I can't think of any example in the history of the United States about anyone who seemed really happy about it. Some of them were just accepting of it. Some of them really hated it. And we talk... I talk a bit about Eleanor Roosevelt mm. as somebody who really... I mean, by God, did she maximise the platform that she was given? She was writing a daily column at yeah. one point. Oh my God! Which, like she was like a sort of blogger before the internet.
2: That's the thing that impresses me the most. I mean, I wrote a weekly column for ten years, and some days I would literally just be in the street going, "Somebody tell me what to write." And so that she like ploughed one out every day is is unbelievable. Yeah,
3: right. But she really struggled with it. You know, she yeah. struggled with the fact that FDR had a, like a long-running affair mm. with his secretary. She was in love with a very feisty sounding lesbian journalist from the White House Press Corps, you know, and had to give up some of her yeah. other work because it wasn't deemed appropriate for a First Lady, which is a kind of classic trope that you get all the way through.
2: Oh, I'm so glad you talk about politics because one my next question was going to be, is the fact that I've not yet heard you talk about great wives in politics, is it? Because there aren't enough geniuses in politics but yeah absolutely savage Abigail Adams I absolutely love her a couple of years ago the whoever do the blue plaques in London were desperate for some women I sent them a thing and said you should do Abigail Adams because she used to she used to live in London there is a house you could put a blue plaque on because I mean you'll know this but I've got a book that's her letters that she wrote to John Adams during the war that's the American Revolutionary War she's constantly saying to him don't forget about women and she's just in there but also she does something incredible she's one of the first person to get her to get her kids vaccinated for smallpox um so she was way Oh, that's ahead interesting. Of the yeah. yeah. Or variolated as it would have probably
3: been right would, yeah, it would have been yeah. an inoculation Yeah, that's yeah. right. So for anyone who's um Yeah, who isn't aware? John Adams, the second president of the United States. Now, unfortunately, destined to be largely remembered from Hamilton, slagging him off in Hamilton. (laughs) They really do him wrong, I think.
2: But yeah, that's another conversation.
3: But I fully recommend that HBO series. And she's one of the wives that kind of pops out. Martha Washington doesn't really kind of get a look in as far as I can remember. Is there a Mrs. Jefferson? There must be a Mrs. Je- I mean, I know there was Sally there was Heming, Sally Hemings, yeah. I don't, I don't but was know. Was there also an, a, a sort of legit Mrs. Jefferson? I, again, I, it's not, she's not a figure that I hear much about, but Abigail Adams stands out. Mary Todd Lincoln, like Abraham Lincoln, I think was incredibly mentally troubled through her period in the White House and got attacked as a sort of Mary Antoinette figure of spending too much money. But I think not only was he very depressed, I think she had kind of mental concerns of her own during that time.
2: They lost a lot of kids, didn't they? Well, they've lost two
3: kids. There is so? one American presidential wife who, basically lost a kid in a train accident about two days before a couple of days before the inauguration and never got over it and I think it's one of those things that actually because they were such literate women there's records of them of the time that there weren't of lots of other women of the period Mm. about the sheer toll that losing children so many children took on them because they were a very odd generation too and if you look at Eliza Hamilton she has babies about over a course of about 20 years you know enough that i'm pretty sure after philip shoots himself i think then she maybe even has another philip you know and he and he dies at the age of sort of 20 their childbearing years are incredibly yeah. long because of life expectancy and improvements in maternal mortality you could genuinely that was a period where you really be able to start having sort of 12 kids which is the other thing that kind of makes all this more extraordinary right and catherine Medici, i briefly talk about one of my sort of personal problematic faves she had 10 children So she spent, you know, a good portion of her... After having spent the first 10 years of her marriage not being able to have any children at all, she then spent the next 15 years basically continuously pregnant without any of the kind of, you know, modern help that you would expect with that. And and eventually she had twins. And it was a really difficult birth and they said, well, you can't, and both died. And they said, you can't have any more after that. So there's a whole thing about, you know, Ginger Rogers could do everything that Fred Astaire could do backwards in high heels. But when you think about women of the pre-modern period, they Mm. could do everything that we could do, but also while, you know, continuously pregnant or nursing a baby.
2: Yeah, Many cases. When I was listening to this, actually wishing that I had a wife because I needed someone to read a map for me while I was driving in the rain. And I was listening to your podcast thinking, oh, I can really see the value in having a great wife now. I was thinking about Gerda Taro, her and Robert Kappa, who that's not his real name, created the pseudonym Robert Kappa and they both did the work. They both sort of shared it. Then she was killed and he just took on the pseudonym and therefore. Everything that has his name on, people assume he took when, in fact, she took loads of them. So there is sort of a a default to assume that the woman is sort of, even still now. I mean, I think it says it on a Wikipedia. I think it doesn't explain that on a Wikipedia page now, but it didn't used to. That, you know, she wasn't a helper. She was fully... You know, involved. They were her
1: photograph.
3: There's a lot of that about um Harriet Taylor Mill did a lot of work on John Stuart Mill's work, mm. including, you know, lots of big philosophical treatises, and has kind of been written out and to some extent now written back in again. And you will find that pattern over and over again. In the first series, I looked at Jane Cornwell, wife of John LeCarry. And, you know, who edited all his books and was his first reader. But their son said, you know, just didn't want any credit to the extent that she would step out of family photos. Right. This isn't always a story about beastly credit stealing men. Sometimes it's a, it's a story about people who are much happier working in the shadows, which is not, I have to say, having having been a writer for so long, not a psychological condition, I understand. Yeah. People don't want the credit, yeah. don't want the praise. That I think there have been more women who have been happier in that role for whatever reason, probably through history.
2: Oh, well, maybe you don't then, because I was going to ask you if you think that being a great wife is, is a dying art in as much as women nowadays do want the credit. Or, or not even the credit. They're just too busy doing their own thing over there. They don't want to be the secretary. Although I'd imagine quite a lot of politics, there is still wives picking up a lot of slack.
3: I mean, I think definitely if you are the non-MP partner of an MP, then the expectation is really, particularly if you're in a constituency outside London, that you will essentially be a kind of single parent during the week and then your partner will come home at weekends. And that does make it very hard for women with young kids to the extent that Baroness Jenkin and Jenkin talked to me about w- Women to Win, which is the Tory attempt to get more female candidates selected, and said, you know, one of the things that we were really successful doing was getting women in their 50s, saying, we know this would have been impossible for you 10 years ago, but now that your kids are teenagers, better to leave home, Think, do think about it. Like, it's, it's something that is very accepted, that the way that the Commons works makes it really hard to be a full parent in the way that you kind of, I think a lot of people would prefer yeah. to be. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Like, I think some people are... Some people are happier out of the limelight. But there is now a very big phenomenon called assortative mating, which is basically that people tend to marry people of equivalent educational level and or professional achievement. So you get fewer CEOs marrying the secretary than you used to. You get more, you know, high profile lawyer, female marrying high profile lawyer, male and then having kind of staff, essentially, to help out with them, rather than that kind of breadwinner, homemaker model that you used to have. I think that has, to some extent, died out. You know, I think it's generally a big problem for the Foreign Office, because if you want to have an ambassador, you really need the ambassador's family and kids to move with them, or you need them to be prepared to put their kids in boarding school. Throughout the 20th century, your answer to having an ambassador was you appointed some posh bloke, and he took his you know non-working wife with him to Uzbekistan, and the kids went to, you know, Harrow. And that model is kind of broken down. And, And there are lots of jobs that have been made harder by the fact that there are fewer women who are willing to be the sort of life's perpetual plus one.
4: While
2: we're on politics, Helen, I know you are willingly or unwillingly an expert on Ron DeSantis. He seems to be running out of track. Is that... Wild optimism on my part, or is that the case?
3: Oh, no, there's been an absolute rash of headlines about the campaign running out of steam. We're talking at the beginning of August, so for about the last week or so, you know, there's been talk about the pivot. They they fired a load of campaign staffers and they had to trim back all the campaign events. He was flying everywhere by private jet, you know, and living this kind of quiet high life. They have now kind of had to say, well, we're going to run a much more sort of Bootstrapping kind of penny pinching operation from now on. So there has definitely been a sense that he got nowhere, Added to which, in the most of the national polls, he's running about twenty points behind Donald Trump. So that comes off the back of the reason I think people had a huge feeling that he would could go somewhere was that he came. This comes off the back of a, a huge tramp in the Florida governor's election. He got re-elected by a really big margin in November 2022. So I think people thought, wow, this guy's electoral catnip. We yeah. maybe can't see why, but he's clearly got something about him. And then if you talk to reporters in Florida who'd covered him, or people like me who went there and they kind of went, yeah, you just, I feel like that might have been, have been other factors, actually. You know, And the, the thing that stood out to me when I was writing my Long Atlantic piece was the fact that Senator Marco Rubio, who's a Florida senator, got elected by a sim- re-elected by a similarly wide margin. His district was back up. So it was like there was a big Florida red wave. And now some of that is... Presumably, if you've got a popular governor candidate and a popular Senate candidate, you know, they kind of each of them boost each other's vote. So you can kind of see attribute some of that to him. I think another big thing was the fact that that Florida's economy weathered COVID particularly well because it really stayed open. And he traded very heavily on that for the kind of people who are Republican-inclined in Florida. Democratic districts were still making you mask indoors in your own home after three years, you know, was the kind (laughs) of attack line. And here you can, you know, you'll be out playing golf and do what you want. And I think that was very compelling. But obviously, no one's really talking about COVID now. It has become an endemic disease like flu that is going to be with us forever, Mm. rather than being an, an emergency, as it was in 2020. And so he's lost the ability to trade on that. And what's left? Well, he's tried to run to Donald Trump's right. But actually, that's not where the voters are in the general. And it doesn't even seem to be where they are in the primary, too. Yeah. So, for example, he's tried to really outflank Donald Trump on abortion, whereas Donald Trump has gotten, in my view, the correct analysis, which is that running as heavily extreme anti-abortion candidates in 2022 really hurt the Republican Party. Most Americans live in a relatively median position of supporting abortion up to about 12 weeks, maybe a little bit further, and not supporting it in the last trimester at all. So if you try and base your policy at one end or the other of the extreme set, that actually loses a lot of people. And the Republican Party is now in a kind of intense, yeah. absolutely no abortions, no exceptions for rape, incest, or fatal fetal abnormalities. Nothing. You know, heartbeat bills. You know, Texas's terrible bounty law that will pursue people who help a woman procure an abortion, and that's you know a big turnoff to kind of suburban mums really who turned against the Republicans at the last election.
2: Yeah. Now, Trump's been arrested again. That's not going to make any difference to whether or not his people support him, sadly. we just talk about the Democrats briefly because everybody who's listening will know my opinion on this, which is that Joe Biden made a stupid selection for V. He made what he believed was a politically savvy decision in 2020, which has come back to bite him on the bum because people don't want Kamala Harris, which means that Joe Biden's going to have to run again. And I find... The idea that that old man is going to be in charge of the most powerful country or could end up in charge of the most powerful country at a point where the world is genuinely pivoting in a whole new direction, whether you're talking about technology or the environment. I find that profoundly dispiriting, genuinely really upsetting that we might end up with Biden. I mean, he's better than Trump, but wowzers
3: one thing that covering american politics has um, made me think is that the prime ministerial system is infinitely superior to the presidential system because when we have a lemon like liz Truss, their own party can go no i don't think so and get rid of them without losing you know the ability to govern right The, the costs are much lower for your own side to look at you and go no no i don't think so and i i share your feelings about biden you know that we talk in politics a lot about um party's having a Ming-Val strategy. So I would say that Labour currently is pursuing a Ming-Val strategy, which basically, like, we're ahead in the polls, we're doing okay, we've just got to carry the ming Vars yeah. across the thing, not drop it, and, like, put it down on the other side. And with America politics and the 2024 presidential election, I feel like Joe Biden is the ming yeah, yeah, I'm just constantly yeah. tense, like, what if he falls over? What if he accidentally calls one person of colour by the name of another person of colour? Like, it's just, you yeah. know, it's like a constant level of tension there will be an enormous meta-argument all the way through that campaign about whether or not the liberal press, the mainstream press, you know, are doing enough to cover it or are they covering up for him? Now, I think you can overfloat that because there was a similar thing about, if you remember all the way through 2016, about, are oh, the liberal press covering up Hillary's terrible mm. health problems? She's got a secret brain tumour. She fell over. You know, whereas, in fact, actually what she had was flu on a really hot day and she staggered slightly and was better two days later. And she's still with us now and perfectly fine. Yeah. That is fair and fair. But I think it is a decision that everybody's going to have to make about how much they report on the fact that it does seem like the White House limits the hours that Biden works. And he doesn't do press conferences, by and large, very rarely. And he's not, observably, not the politician that he was 10 or 20 years ago. And that's really awkward. You shouldn't, as you say, you shouldn't be having a kind of clash of the, you know, 80-something versus the slightly less old
2: person. Yeah. One yeah, exactly. of whom is a criminal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's not what anyone pick. I was watching Oppenheimer, which I know you've seen. I saw you saying on Twitter. I saw it on Friday. And there's the scene where they tell Robert Downey Jr. that, you know, that somebody's voted against him. And he says, oh, who was it? And they start to describe who it is. And they're leading up to Kennedy. But my brain said it's Biden. And then I was like, oh, no,
0: Biden's <laughs> not that
2: old. But that's how old he is in my head. That He could have been in. Yeah. Yeah. That's really
3: bad. Yeah, I know. Well, he has been in. How long has he been senator? He was senator for Delaware, right, in the 80s? Yeah, I mean, long time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a long, long time. I'm not looking forward to next year because, as you say, it does feel like every American election feels incredibly portentous and weighted with the hand of history. That's just how they, you know, roll. But when you think about the fact of what is the American position on Ukraine, be very different under Trump compared with Biden? What is the American position on climate change? Be very Mm -hmm. different between Trump and Biden. This does feel like an election in which the rest of us have a a stake. You know, it's not a a purely domestic election. Frankly, if it's Trump next time, you know, that has got serious consequences for
2: the global picture
3: and for Europe in terms of what the signal it sends to Vladimir Putin about what he can and can't get away with in Europe. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and he doesn't even have a great wife, Helen. Mrs. Putin? Uh, No, 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 I meant Mrs. Trump. No, Mrs. Trump is having absolutely nothing to
3: do with it. Melania won't even leave Mar-a-Lago. I think has basically just gone, you're on your own, Donald. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why she's Russian. And also, every time I try and do an Eastern European accent, it defaults to Robbie Coltrane in Goldmine. (laughs) So let me apologise to Slovenia for that one.
2: Oh, Helen, this has been excellent.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by award-winning theatre maker, artist and actor, Elizabeth Gunawan. Elizabeth, hello. Hi, wiki It's
4: really nice to be here.
0: So yeah, let's kick off with the most obvious question. Tell us about your play,
4: Unforgettable Girl, and its main character, Vaccine. Unforgettable Girl has been one of the biggest surprises of my creative life. The piece actually began when I was a student at RADA, uh, for a little bit of context. I'm Indonesian. I went to RADA slightly before the pandemic and before also a lot of the conversations that were started by the Black Lives Matter momentum after the murder of George Floyd. And when I was there, I was the only East Asian woman in a performing arts course. I remember joking to a friend and saying, you know, I can't skip class because they'll immediately notice." (laughs) I think this piece and this character was sort of born... Almost like a strange guardian angel or maybe guardian demon of my <laughs> time, which was a time that both gave me all of the skills and the ways of thinking about theater that I still use today, but was also an extremely uh, hostile and dangerous time because I was entering a space where. And I think a lot of women, and particularly women of color, will feel a bit of familiarity when they hear this. It was a space where bodies like mine held the burden of servitude, and it was kind of expected that if you were given entry, if you're allowed in, that you would kind of stay on the sidelines. And that was something that also made me very angry. It was also something that I noticed, and also that people around me noticed, One of our first assignments at RADA was actually to create a drag piece, which we then went on to perform at a bar in Shoreditch. This was our first semester. And I remember the provocation that my teacher gave me was, discover a mask that's going to help you reveal yourself. And so this character that I played around with was a way for me to explore all of the ways in which I... Had to be forced to be a certain way in order to maintain my space in this, you know, very elite, very white space. I had to be intelligent and well spoken and this and that. And so I created this character that was the exact opposite of all of those things. It was this mail order bride, you know, complete with ping pong balls and a tacky fan and wedding dress. And yet she, she had this courage that I often didn't have. The character kind of came out in this little drag piece and went on to become actually my dissertation piece at RADA. I performed it at Loomsbury Festival. It premiered for a two night run at the cockpit in 2021. And somebody from the stage saw it. And we got five stars from the stage and an off award from The Office, which is given to sort of the best show at Voila Festival. And so I've been completely also bowled over by how resonant this piece has been to kind of the audiences who have come to see it and have seen the ways in which this piece challenges those like invisible power structures, the ways in which it makes people who, you know, I saw also the look of familiarity that you gave me, that smile of when, you know, Everybody knows when you enter a space and everything is kind of saying that you don't belong there. Uh I think there's a lot of people who find that the piece resonates and makes them feel heard and seen. So I'm really excited to bring it to Edinburgh Fridge. My hope is that it's going to kind of get the audience that I think it deserves.
0: I love that. Edinburgh is so open. And I think that that idea of adventuring creativity, which it sounds like Unforgettable Girl, absolutely embraces is something that is also embraced by Edinburgh audiences. So yeah, I think you'll have a great festival. There was a line that I read in an interview you'd done about vaccine. And you said, like many women, vaccine adopts or performs certain identities in order to survive. And I was like, "Who? Oh, fucking when? hell. Yeah, how true. And I think for women, and even more so for marginalised women, having to adopt identities to fit in, to be accepted, to test out waters slows down the process
4: of us working out who we actually are. Absolutely. In the case of Vaccine, we play around with the idea that she came from the wasteland of uh, East Asian stereotypes. So a male-order bride, uh, ping-pong balls, uh, accent. uh, She comes from Vietnam and also Thailand and also the Philippines, because they're all the same place anyway. (laughs) And even the title, Unforgettable Girl, is a trope. It's a trope of male desire that continues to be relevant in our world today, not because of women necessarily want to be desired by men, but because it's a trope that protects us. Uh That if you are this way and that way, you will be permitted into these spaces. And even more deeply than that, that you will survive. And what happens throughout the piece, I like to describe it as a sort of ego death. Because basically you see this woman who... You know, Vaccine is, of course, a character, but in a lot of ways, that woman is no one other than, well, me in a costume, you know. In some way, she's every woman. So you see this woman performing all of these identities as a way to survive. And then you start to see the crafts in her, and she's forced to peel it back and peel it back and peel it back until you meet her kind of in her origin story But these acts of destruction of kind of the constructs of identity that she's put on eventually leads to a sort of empowerment. And I won't kind of give the story away, but these images that are also even in the marketing of the piece, the headband and everything, something that was really important for me is that the piece has a really strong sense of anger and beauty, life-giving anger, life-giving beauty, challenging beauty. I think... That's really important as well. And at the end of the day, we want people to feel all sorts of things when they come to the show. We want them to laugh. We want them to feel a little bit sour and sometimes a little bit embarrassed, but also we want them to feel empowered and we want them to lead with a sort certain... of hope. Hope is great.
0: Hope, I think, is the thing that will kill us all, but I'm here for it. I'm absolutely here for <laughs> it.
4: <laughs> the name Vaccine, what's the story behind that? <laughs> absolutely. So... When I was talking about the sort of beginning of the piece, the character was first born in the fall of 2019. And as you know, the pandemic really hit us all in the face around, I think, March 2020. But it was already, as I was developing that piece, the time when uh, there were talks of, you know, Donald Trump was calling it the China virus. And already there was also a rise of violence against East Asian populations, particularly actually older populations. And it was so interesting, the fact that, in a way, there was a certain entanglement between presenting as an East Asian person and this virus and flipping that on its head, you know, because at the time, everybody was hoping for a vaccine, right? Yeah. She calls herself the vaccine for the deadlier pandemic that has plagued us for longer, which is loneliness. And I think that there were a lot of really interesting also entanglements with other metaphors like, or is she the vaccine also for the illness that is in all of us, that is our loyalty to institutional racism and patriarchy, you know, which exists in all of us. And the nature of what a vaccine does is it introduces a little bit of the virus in order that you have to fight it back. And it kind of goes into... nature of the show and the nature of the character which is that she's extremely challenging i love the idea that that scene comes in you meet her in the beginning of the show and she comes out of an amazon prime box because (laughs) that's how she's been delivered to um um to the pleasants in Edinburgh and although the promise of the mail-order bride is servitude and pleasing Mm -hmm. and being pleasant and she does exactly the opposite of all those things because she judges people she insults their shoes she asks really uncomfortable probing questions it's the best thing really making audiences uncomfortable there's there's no sport quite like it i wish listeners you could see elizabeth's face right now because she is having a lovely time just even thinking about making audiences uncomfortable (laughs) there's definitely a fine balance because what i don't think any piece of theater should do is harass its audience that's not what she wants to do you want to play (laughs) with them almost like they're uh, you know, their children. We all are inside, aren't we? Yeah. That they feel a little bit. Oh, about me. Oh, don't pick on me. But also inside, they're they're so delighted. And this is actually something that we come to in the climax of the piece. That there's something about a love of the audience and the generosity of the performer that is so important in this piece. And that is actually an important line in Unforgettable Girl about those people who maybe hate me, who maybe want to exact violence on me. This performance is for them too. She dances, she clowns around, she does all that for them too. This is for everyone. There's a sense of generosity and love that you can discover in the communal experience of theatre.
0: I think also you've touched on her being a vaccine for loneliness. And that is a theme that runs through a lot of your work. And it's that wherever we go, we go there alone. And that comes from obviously being othered. But also I do feel like being seen is so important to us and to have that interaction with the audience. They feel like they're being seen in that moment.
4: Yeah. I I would say also that the experiences that we sort of give space to in this piece are not not exclusively experienced by women of colour. You know, an audience comes into the room, I don't know what they've been uh, through. And I do think, as you were saying, that the power of theater partly is its ability to, in a way, recollect our memory, right? We see, through the power of our imagination, the world inside out, in a way. You don't see thing that happens that we see with our naked eyes, but we see the emotional experience that happens underneath. But when you confront these experiences of anger, of marginalization, of Trauma, even in a theater, you're in a safe space, you're in a dark room, and you confront it with a little bit of distance and with the safety of imaginary circumstances. For me, that's one of the most exciting things about theater. And because it has this really powerful potential, I also feel like theater had a, has a strong kind of ethical responsibility in that sense as well. It has the responsibility. Ability of being benevolent and being ethical and being, you know, and I think all of that makes it more entertaining. You know, I think a lot of people are talking about, oh, there's like, there's so much censorship nowadays. You have to be really careful what you say. And, you know, I, I see where they're coming from. And at the same time, I'm like, you can't be funny without being racist and misogynistic and blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm really funny. It's like, are you saying that because we can't do all those things, it's making us less creative? I think that's maybe a challenge for for us to be even more creative and to speak more underneath the surface. Totally, totally agree with you. Now,
0: there is a rich theme of, um, and please forgive my pronunciation, listeners will know that my French accent is appalling, Um, the Buffon in Unforgettable Girl, which Which, is a collaboration with Created a Monster, who are big in to Buffon. And I hope I'm not simplifying too much to say that Buffon is sort of dark clowning with a sharp line in mockery. I wondered what drew you to this way of storytelling?
4: Absolutely. My French accent is non-existent. Yes, Uh, (laughs) Buffon, which is even (laughs) more embarrassing. It's like the hairstyle, although the hairstyle means airhead, Which I think it was, which is to do with well, Buffon's the sort of the sort of derogatory name for an idiot. Basically, Mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned created a monster because this piece I think very much scaffolds onto the work of also a lot of women in sort of clown and Buffon spaces that are often not as visible. So I developed this with one of the directors is Brian O'Callaghan, who's the Artistic Director of Created a Monster. We also worked with the mentorship of a woman named Peter Lilly, who is an expert on clown and specifically dark clown in the UK. So a lot of kind of amazing women helped us create this piece, as well as Simon Glee, who's also a a key artistic associate and a a great ally throughout this project, who's also part of Created a Monster. So, clowns are generally, and again, I have one perspective on it. There may be people out there who have a different perspective. The territory of the clown are characters who are quite childlike and vulnerable. And generally, emotions that are to do with the clown is of play and pleasure and loveliness. You know, think about Viggo Van, who I think is also going to Edinburgh Fringe and who won Britain's Got Talent. He's just like a lovely person. Mm -hmm. You just want... And their clowns are children. They play. They just play and play and play. And they play because they're safe and they can do so. Buffon are in some ways called the anti-clown. Right. And actually another woman, her name's Louise Peacock, said something that I think is massively helpful in looking at Buffon, which is that we make fun of the clown, but the Buffon, make fun of us. So the origin of the buffon are also, they're usually outcasts of society. They are people who are not permitted in our spaces, and the only time they're permitted is when they perform. And when they perform, they'd better be funny. So unlike a clown, buffons in a way, have very little vulnerability, because they are constantly in danger. They're constantly unsafe. And one of the things that they do, they're kind of narrow margin of freedom is when they make fun of the people who oppress them. They make people laugh. And then the people laughing suddenly realize they're laughing at themselves. That's part of what the bouffon does. And so there was just something incredibly potent about using the bouffon when talking about identities and stories that exist in the margins. And there was something as well very, very confronting about having vaccine, this mail-order bride who comes and confronts us all in all of the ways in which she is other, but all of the ways in which the way the audience is present otherizes her. So what she reveals is this system that sort of subjugates us all, really. And that's kind of been a, a long exploration a very rewarding exploration for us. Amazing. So Unforgettable Girl is at Pleasant's Courtyard until August the 28th. Elizabeth, where can people find out more information about Unforgettable Girl, please? You can go to the Pleasant's website and search Unforgettable Girl and you can find out more information about where we're on. You can also find me on social media. My name is Elizabeth Gunawan. That's Elizabeth with an S to separate it from our dead queen, may she rest in peace. <laughs> and also my website, art. You can find all kinds of information about both the show and all my other projects there. Well, I wanted to ask
0: you about your artistic collective, Saxy Bisou. Again, I'm so sorry for my
4: pronunciation. Please say it better for me in a moment. What are you working on there? So actually, you said it perfectly. It's, it's Saxy Bisu exactly. The... In Indonesian, bisu means uh, silent witness. I like that bisu is also play on words because in French, it means kiss. So there's something about this kind of shared intimacy, a uh, silent shared intimacy with the audience, which is such a big part of my work. I have recently finished an incredibly rewarding experience working at the Barbican, developing my new piece as part of their open lab program. The piece is called Prayers for a Hungry Ghost. Again, I love using um, kind of stories and and myths from kind of my own background as a Southeast Asian woman to explore larger systemic issues. And Prayers for a Hungry Ghost, it's basically using the myth of, you know, there's this belief that people who are greedy are reborn as ghosts with like empty bellies and fire in their mouths, so everything they eat turns to ash. So it's sort of an exploration of the kind of greed and intergenerational trauma and deep sense of worthlessness that is actually created by this narrative of the model minority and is sort of explored through the story of one family. And that's incredibly exciting. I'm also at the moment developing a new project that's still again in R&D phase with New Diorama Theater. I'm also part of the Royal Court Playwriting Program, one of the cohort of writers there. So there's a lot of things that's kind of brewing, but right? definitely, while well, all my crazy monstrous children, our forgettable girl, is the one that's kind of ready to go to college and exact a lot of mess and chaos and destruction onto the <laughs> world and a lot of trouble. So that's sort of where I am now. But my hope is that in the future, that a lot of these stories also can find audiences that will be soothed and nourished and challenged and entertained by them.
0: Elizabeth, it's been absolutely delightful hearing about your crazy monstrous children.
4: Thank you so much for chatting with me. Oh, thank you, Mickey. It's been a pleasure. You play ball like a girl!
1: Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we break away from the patriarchy and sprint across the finish line as we discuss all things women's sport. As we head with alarming pace towards the end of the Women's World Cup, I thought I might just take a minute to reflect on what an incredible tournament it's been. The semi-finals are underway as I record this with Spain and Sweden currently drawing 0-0, but you'll know by the time you listen to this what the outcome was. Depending on whether you listen to this on your way into work on Wednesday morning or your way home... You also know the outcome of the semi-final between Australia and England. Now, look, I said at the beginning of this tournament that I expected Australia to do well, but not to win. Who knows? Maybe they'll prove me wrong. Certainly, England will not be the crowd favourites. And we know from the Euro last year how buoyant a home crowd can be. I'm making no predictions at this stage. And that's been the beauty of this tournament, really. We've seen some very surprising results. We've seen the growth of other teams since previous tournaments. We've seen great promise in teams like, for example, Colombia and Nigeria in terms of where the women's game is heading. There's so much to be excited about. Let's have a look at what happened at the Cycling World Championships last week as well. Congratulations to Team GB, whose women's team won the Madison and the Team Pursuit and came second in the Team Sprint. Neither Eleanor Barker nor Katie Archibald picked up any individual medals, but excitingly, 20-year-old Emma Finnecane won gold in the individual women's sprint, showing some pretty serious chops ahead of next year's Olympics. Finnecane from Wales completed the fastest ever 200 metres by a woman at sea level during qualifying I don't really know what that means either presumably there have been faster speeds achieved either above or below the sea level I don't know anyway she won four golds earlier this year at the British Championships but she now becomes only the third British woman to take the Sprint World Championship after Victoria Pendleton and Becky James so watch this space Elsewhere, someone who's seen a few gold medals in her time, Dame Sarah Storey, picked up her 36th, in fact, Paracycling World Championship gold in the C5 individual time trial beating Alana Foster by 1 minute 14.41 seconds. Olympic gold medalist Beth Shriver also held on to her BMX World title, which she claimed golden back in 2021 congratulations also in cricket that is to tammy beaumont who's hit the first ever century in the hundreds women's competition for those of you who don't know the hundred is a 100 ball cricket league of eight men's and eight Women's teams is doing absolutely great things for the women's game, having the men and women side by side there. And I know loads of parents actually who say their kids absolutely love it, which can only be positive, in my opinion. Beaumont's team Welsh Fire beat the Trent Rockets by one hundred and eighty-one for three to one hundred and forty for five. Her score of one hundred and eighteen is the best of either the men's or women's side of the competition, and the team score of one hundred and eighty-one is a women's record. Also, Welsh Fire are, incidentally currently top in the standings with nine points. Previously, Will Jacks held the record with 108 not out for the Oval Invincibles last year. I'm seeing a lot of arguments about this kind of thing at the moment. I'm sure because the World Cup always brings all the idiots out, but it's the kind of like, oh, it's not competitive like the men's games, so somehow these records mean less? But it's women competing against women, so I don't really understand the logic. To deny, for example, the spectacular feat of Chloe Kelly whose penalty for England against Nigeria was faster than any taken in the Premier League last season. I mean, I'm struggling to see how her gender gives her an advantage here. But whatever, like I said, all the idiots are out. On that note, that is all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sport.
2: Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen... Which film, which took place at Big Daddy's birthday party, but had a disappointing
0: lack of wrestling, did
2: we watch this week?
0: Oh my God, my grandma was obsessed with Big Daddy. I think my
1: mum used to live next door to either Big Daddy or Giant Haystacks.
0: I thought for a moment you were doing one of those either Big Penis jokes, no. either Big Daddy. No, yeah. either Big Daddy or Giant Haystacks. Yeah,
1: I'm going to have to ask her about that later.
2: I had some friends when we were at school who their mum cared for a man who had come out. This was like in the late 80s, early 90s when they closed a lot of sort of mental health facilities and did the care in the community thing. Mm -hmm. And she'd taken on one of their neighbours to look after him because he wasn't very good at looking after himself. And there didn't appear to be much of a safety net. And periodically you'd answer the phone at their house and it would be Frankie. And he would just say, big daddy's on tonight. And then just hang up. the phone. <laughs> and I was thinking, it sounded like the world's worst dirty call, but he was just keeping you informed every time Big Daddy was on the telly.
0: And my grandma would have loved that information, because yeah, the only thing she, she ever watched on her black and white telly from her bed, because she had rheumatoid arthritis and couldn't walk, was either the wrestling or the snooker. That's all that was on. We've got wildly off topic. Quite the interlude.
1: <laughs> this week, we watched 1958's Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Directed by Richard Brooks and adapted from the 1955 Pulitzer winning play by Tennessee Williams. Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Newman star as the ludicrously handsome leads Maggie and Brick. Anyone want to say anything at this point, Mickey? No?
0: Sweaty with the swooning over both of them. Mm. What a a good looking couple. How was it in the past
1: that William's tits were so pointy? Pointy. It's the shape of the bra.
2: Yeah. No, no, it
0: was their actual
1: tits,
0: Jen. That's um, so, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> misinformation.
1: <laughs> How
2: did it not create some sort of overspill? Because tits aren't naturally pointy, is
1: my question. I guess they but... were quite structured. probably didn't really yeah. matter what okay. shape your actual tits were. I don't know. Anyway, I'll follow that up with a... It's not fun, it's quite depressing actually, facts. Taylor could almost have not starred in this film. The production began on March 12th 1958 and Taylor quickly became sick with a virus and couldn't join the shoot. She also, as a result of her illness, cancelled plans to fly to New York with then husband Mike Todd. A flight which ultimately crashed, killing all passengers including Todd. Taylor returned to the shoot the following month. I did not know that.
0: That's a lot of information, a lot of sad information. And there's more where that came from. But
1: anyway, let's look at the plot quickly. Retired footballer turned commentator Brick Pollitt is the son of a wealthy southern businessman, Big Daddy, not the wrestler. Brick and his wife Maggie, (laughs) the cat, as well as sensible lawyer brother... Not an actual cat. Not an actual Mm. cat, just what they call her. As well as sensible lawyer brother Gooper. Very annoying wife, May, and even more annoying brood of children. They descend on the family pile in Mississippi for Big Daddy's birthday. Brick is on crutches after breaking his ankle during some drunken antics. And he is getting even drunker, much to the chagrin of absolutely everyone, including Maggie, with whom he appears to be stuck in a loveless marriage, constantly spurning her advances. They don't have kids, and there's a reason for that. Big Daddy, we are told, has cancer and the kids await his arrival, keen to find out his prognosis and pick over the bones of his estate. Everyone except Brick, who certainly seems a little down in the dumps. Big Daddy has been told he's fine so as not to ruin his birthday, it it would appear. But he is not. The doctor fesses up to the kids. That shit is unfortunately terminal. In the heart-to-heart, soul-searching and arguments over the next hour or so, we find out that Brick is grieving his close friend and former teammate Skipper, of whom Maggie was irrationally jealous. Or was she? Did she have sex with him? Did Brick have sex with him? Well, apparently neither of them did, but he died by suicide after a plot by Maggie to seduce him sort of falls through, but leaves him kind of exposed, I suppose. Brick blames Maggie, but more than anything else, he blames himself for not being there to help his friend during his hour of need. As the night continues, Brick accidentally reveals to Big Daddy that this birthday will be his last and all hell breaks loose, culminating in a massive lie by Maggie which inexplicably saves her marriage. Or does it? Who knows? The film was a huge hit, becoming the third highest grossing film of the year and MGM's biggest film of the year. It made $17.6 million from a budget of $2.3 million. That might have been helped in part by the increasing attention on Taylor's personal life during the making of the film after an affair with Eddie Fisher was revealed. Fisher had been married to sweet as American pie Debbie Reynolds, a friend of Taylor's, and the perception of Taylor switched from grieving widow to ruthless homewrecker overnight. While Fisher's television show was cancelled, MGM decided to take a bit of a gamble by playing up to all this and featured Taylor in a sexy slip draped across a bed on the film poster what can we say sex sells and the audience absolutely lapped it up ironically because no one's having sex in this no exactly it's really yeah. funny isn't it because you see that poster mm. and it is absolutely in no way like the content of the film couldn't be less
0: i think cooper and may should have had much less sex <laughs> at least six times yeah, less sex. i'd agree mm. with that
1: so though it was nominated for six Academy Awards and it didn't win any of them uh, including Best Screenplay based on material from Another Medium or what we now know as a Best Adapted Screenplay both Williams and Newman were said to be disappointed with the adaptation in Williams' original play it's Skipper who can't go through with Sleeping with Maggie not the other way around and Brick says that he resisted Skipper's advances shortly before Skipper's suicide however the film's ability yeah. to tell that story was hampered somewhat by censorship laws known as the Hays Code at the time which included a ban on portrayals of and I quote sex perversion which effectively included homosexuality so the film was a hit with critics but some picked up on the absence of Brick's homosexual desires which without them they claimed his motivations were not entirely convincing
2: absolutely in the play he tells Brick that he loves him yeah and it's very clear that Brick is like but the reason he does sleep with maggie is because he wants to throw maggie off the scent
0: he tries to sleep with maggie but he can't can't keep
2: his erection okay yeah. but the point is that it's because he, Maggie's clearly rumbled the fact yeah. that they are yeah. gay, so he's trying to prove that they're not.
1: Yeah. So I'd never seen this before, and I've never studied the play. I've never read it. I've never read any of Williams's other plays, like at school or later in life. I'm pretty sure that both of you have seen this film before, or at least read the play, right?
0: I've read the play and seen the play. I haven't seen the film before, actually. I
2: have seen the play and seen the film. I have. I've not read it.
1: So what I wanted to ask you both first of all because I know that you are big fans what is it that you love so much about Tennessee William? He's got a wonderful way with words he he writes
2: beautifully and he's very funny and this is very funny Mm. like seriously funny I don't think it's his funniest play I think that's probably The Glass Menagerie is fucking hilarious but this is really funny everything that's got the kids in it is absolutely hilarious but it's because he I mean he's a really interesting character and he brings that interestingness you know because he was quite well to do but because he was gay he was an outsider so he writes about outsiders which is really interesting and because of what happened to his sister you know he writes about women and sexuality with some kind of knowledge of where it comes from but basically he's looked at the South and all of the, you know, all of the stuff that, that we're led to believe about the South of America, that it's really genteel, that it's really polite. That thing it puts out about itself, that it has family values. Mm. And he basically said everything about this is a lie. The South is violent. It is fucked up. It is dysfunctional. And yeah, I think it's brilliant. I love it.
0: He's an on- absolute master of language and creating atmosphere i feel like when i'm reading his words or watching a play or watching this film i felt hot i felt sticky i felt that tension Mm. he really is incredible at creating that tension and throwing you in a scene and he wasn't scared of tackling issues that not a lot of people were tackling at the time But I've got to say, it's a bit more basic than that for me. I just think his writing is beautiful Mm, and he makes me laugh. I think this must have been pretty progressive for its time, right? The film does fuck the
2: play up, but then the film of Streetcar Named Desire fucks the film up because it changes the ending and it, you know, removes with this, it removes the central point of it
0: doesn't quite remove the central point but i wondered because jen hadn't seen the play already and i know hannah has mm-hmm. seen the play a lot and loves tennessee williams i wondered whether it's because i know the play that i thought the absence it didn't work as well but it still worked because i was like oh i agree there are hints i agree it's very yeah, much yeah.
1: inferred i think yeah
0: yeah i think they managed yeah. to get round the censorship if i hadn't read about it
1: i don't know if i would have picked up on it as much as but I do think it's in fact. I don't
0: know because you can't not, I can't no. not have seen it before. I, don't, I don't think it's that
1: subtle though, is it? Like the conversation he has oh. with Big Daddy isn't that
2: subtle. I don't think so.
0: No. No. But the
2: other thing is, like I say, he and Big Daddy sort of reunite at the end. Yeah. And interestingly, one of the things that annoys me about this change is in the play, Maggie tells that lie mm. and then they go up to the room and Maggie says, we better make this true. Yeah. Mm. Whereas, in this version, it's brick that gets the last word, it's brick that decides that he wants to change. And I think that once again, it's sort of as in the same with when they change the end of a streetcar named Desire, it, it questions or I don't know, it takes Maggie's power away. And I just don't like it because I think it, it ends on a note that isn't the note that Tennessee, Tennessee Williams did not like this. and. This is apparently his favourite play. This was the one he liked the most, so he's probably more disappointed by the ending of this than anything else.
0: It takes away Maggie's power. It takes away the punch of the play. And also it muddies the waters, even with the inferences that have been there about Brick's sexuality.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think like this film does feel like... The ending shouldn't be happy, right? And and I guess you could argue is that a happy end? And she's told this massive lie, and like clearly there's so much beef between these two. I don't think there's any coming back from that, whether or not one of them is gay or isn't gay. Like I think that's. I disagree with your.
0: You described it as a loveless marriage, and I don't think it is. I think Maggie does really love Brick, but it's. I meant loveless in the um,
1: the euphemistic sense of the word, as in they they're not having sex.
2: It's interesting because when he says to her, just get a boyfriend, basically, yeah. I don't care, get a boyfriend, I'm not fussed, she says, I don't deserve that, and it's really interesting because within the contents of that sentence, I don't know what she means by that. She mm. could either mean, I don't deserve it, as in, I don't deserve to be spoken to like that, I don't deserve to be like pimped out for your convenience type thing, or does she mean... I am not in some way worthy of having anyone else because her self-esteem is so low because he doesn't want her. She doesn't think anyone will want her. I don't deserve somebody else.
0: I heard it as very much the former, but that is a really interesting take on it. Nonetheless, it it is wild
2: to have a film made in the 1950s that the central character is a woman desperate for a
1: shout. Yes, exactly. That is wild. This is is what I mean. Like It must have been very ahead of its time, Mm. right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And th- they haven't censored that at all. No. Like she is a cat, right? She's a cat on heat and she's determined to get it. And I think Elizabeth Taylor really nails it and she nails it on her own merit. But also the understatedness of Paul Newman's performance just adds more power to hers, I think. I think she's
1: yeah. a very interesting character. She's kind of awful in, in a variety of ways, but I feel like I definitely felt a lot of sympathy towards her and and I was rooting for her.
0: I quite like Maggie the cat. <laughs> I don't
2: think she's awful. And if she is awful, it's to the people in this play, none of whom deserve her to be nice. Yeah. True. So... Yeah, all right,
1: true. But like, I think some of her behaviour, the lie at the end is morally questionable.
2: I don't even know if it's just for the money. I don't know if it's to try and force Paul Newman's hand. I don't know. But she is on her own. Like yeah. really in this situation. Yeah. The only ally she has in that house is Big Daddy and she just found out he's going to die.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. She's desperate, isn't she? You know, she's come from a place of poverty and that's what she doesn't want to go back to. And she's also, I think she does love him. I think you're right. And she's desperate to keep him. So I think she's, you know, she's up against it, isn't she? And you do i
0: think she's desperate and frightened. Yeah. Mm. So she like, you know, like a frightened cat. She's Mm. kind of like lashing out sometimes. But I, I have quite a lot of respect for maggie and yeah that you're right the thing that she does at the end is morally questionable but like who the fuck in that family isn't morally questionable
2: yeah. and if he makes the old man die happy then maybe you know it's a good white lie and if he leaves her all the money you know all the better for her all of that said i find brick sympathetic anyway but i find paul newman's portrayal of brick to
1: be especially sympathetic
0: yeah it's so lovely yeah I
1: find yeah. paul newman's face pretty sympathetic as well to totally her, but
0: oh just let it rain a little bit longer, please. I liked that he once again started a film, as in Cool Han Luke, absolutely mashed off his face trying to do yeah. something ridiculous. And I was like, did he just have that in his contract for a bit? Like, I will always start the film me drunk and, and trying to do something silly. And I don't know, is it because Paul Newman is so great? Or is it because Brick as a character is so well written? Or is it the combination? I guess it's the combination, but... I have a lot of love for Brick, even when he's being an arsehole. You're just like, yeah, I understand why you're being an arsehole. This is so hard.
2: Well, well, Brick is Tennessee Williams, isn't he? Tennessee Williams, a gay alcoholic, you know. I carry the same feelings I have for Tennessee Williams onto Brick, I think, because you know it's him.
0: I think they deal with the alcoholism really Mm. well as well, in that he's constantly drinking. But apart from that opening scene where he breaks his leg, you never see him hammered. But I think the depictions of alcoholism go to like someone who's like rolling drunk and that's just not right. how a lot of alcoholics work well, they the function. tolerance you
1: build up yeah. for a start yeah. is going to have a massive impact on that right so
0: yeah. yeah
2: although that said there are bits in this where there's absolutely he would be in screaming agony given that he broken his ankle yesterday so the fact that he is pissed makes that
1: all of that a bit more believable because, yeah, because yeah, he probably can't it? feel it, yeah. yeah, I thought that they handled the depiction of that really well from like the reactions of everyone else as well. It's quite like, oh no, has he had another drink, like, oh God, like blah, blah blah, and you can see like the concern they know like the way it's going, and I thought they did that really well. I thought it was really understated in a lot of ways, the way they did it, except for the
2: fight that he has with Big Daddy, but the fight he has with Big Daddy is really interesting when he keeps saying to him, Why do you drink?' Why do you drink? Because I think it shows a, a level of understanding of alcoholism that's quite far in advance. Yeah, in the 1950s, Yeah, like there is probably a cause almost. behind this. Yeah. yeah, there's a reason you're doing this. That isn't just you're weak or you're you know feckless or whatever. There's something else. There's another reason behind it. Yeah,
0: and you're right, Jen. The reactions are really good because his mum, big mama is absolutely in denial and just like oh well you know his dad takes a drink his dad takes will not face up to it at all that's
2: really interesting the relationship she has with him and that's very Tennessee Williams as well yeah the way that because I think it's quite perceptive about the way that mothers are about their youngest Mm. sons
0: when she says my Um, only son and Goober's like I'm right here (laughs) mum yeah
2: (laughs) Goober and May I absolutely love them not as people but as characters they are so funny so unbelievably funny and those kids are funny and just the way Awful. there's a bit where yeah. where they get off the plane and he gets in the car with maggie big daddy and uh, big mama's saying oh but no it was a great job kids which he's basically ignored and he goes be quiet woman <laughs> <laughs> and i know it's offensive but it makes me piss myself laughing every time
0: i really love the scene where big daddy is trying to talk to brick And they're all just sort of passing by the windows, like trying to hear what's going on. And it's it's almost fast, but obviously it's Tennessee Williams, so he pulls back or and the director pulls back. They're such busybodies. They're so wanting to get in everyone's business because they're frightened as well, I guess. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, it's so beautifully done when Big Daddy just walks May in and he's like, what are you doing? Out. Yeah.
2: But that said, Gooper does does say to his dad and is absolutely correct. I did everything you asked me mm-hmm. to and it wasn't good enough. It's a great speech. Yeah. It's a really great speech. It is a really good speech. Mm. Yeah. And that, that I think is a really interesting question eternally. It happens all the time about men that have grown up, you know, poor or self-made men. And actually, there was a really interesting conversation in this week, Winning Time, with Dr. Jerry Buff saying to his kids, I worked this hard so your life would be better. You know, I did this for you. There's a really interesting thing about, you know, the guilting your kids into saying I treated you like this was because I thought it would make you a better human being, which is quite interesting, I think.
0: A different kind of legacy. So it's not just the legacy of name and money. It's the legacy of how you treat your kids, how you treat your fellow yeah. human beings yeah again beautifully explored by williams and i think yeah, done justice here in the film
1: i did just want to ask about the women what does it say about women
0: well it says that they have sexual desires
1: mm-hmm. which is one thing
0: all of them yeah. yeah so may is up the duff for the 87th time uh, maggie the cat obviously really wants to jump the bones of her husband But even Big Mama is like, no, I loved you. Like, I really wanted you. And she says that out loud, which is almost the most sort of shocking for Mm. the time, I guess. Mm.
2: I don't think it says as much about women now as it did in the 1950s. But obviously, you know, in the 1950s, women still basically were beholden to the good attitude of their husbands if they wanted to survive in the world.
0: The women are of their time, mm. I think, but they're all really well-written. They're yeah. really well-rounded characters. They all have an element of agency. They all express their opinions. You know, Goopa might be telling him, uh, shut up, sister woman, but she doesn't. <laughs> May keeps talking. Yeah. Oh, I love her. Uh, <laughs> she's appalling. <laughs> she's, she's so, so She's Those so terrible. Those children glorious. are just horrific. Yeah. I had a little
2: look to see who had played in revivals of cat on a hot tin roof to see sort of what the best pairing of the three of them were and there was a a 1990 broadway revival in which kathleen turner played maggie which looked interesting i thought but the best one was there was a film and it had you'll like this mick 1984 television performance produced by american playhouse starring jessica lang tommy lee jones and rip torn
0: Oh my goodness. I mean you have this in the nineteen eighties, but that's delightful, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> was Tommy Lee Jones, I guess, was Brick. Yeah, Tommy right? Lee Jones
2: was brick and Rip Torn was Big Daddy. Rip yeah.
0: Torn. Wow. I can't imagine
1: what Tommy Lee Jones looked like in nineteen eighty four. Can only think of him in like the fugitive, so not. He's
0: always
2: much... looked the same. He yeah. just always looked the same. Yeah. I suppose it's interesting that certainly as early as it was, because... Ben Gazzara played him on stage, but Ben Gazzara wasn't interested in this version of mm. the of the screenplay. He didn't like it. So then they offered it to... There was somebody else they offered it to, and he said no, and then Paul Newman took it up. It's interesting that men, sort of Hollywood-leading men, were, were good with playing a gay man yeah. in the 1950s, I suppose. Yeah.
1: Well, I think I know where we're all going to stand on this, but let's ask the question.
2: Rated... Well, I'm going to say, given that the house Code fucked it over, it's actually dated, but I fucking love it.
1: I suppose it is, but yeah, I'm going to say I really enjoyed it. Hannah, thank you for suggesting that I choose it. <laughs>
2: You're (laughs)
0: welcome, Hannah, thank you for choosing it Can I just say,
2: before we go to the next one It's so fucking hot, the three of us are sitting here Looking like we're in a Tennessee (laughs) It's it's
0: glowy It's a glowy face that we're all looking at (laughs) I was going to say I agree with you that obviously it's dated But I do think that Even though the Hayes Code is awful Awful censorship and, and horrific dated views I think They still get the message across I think so Now then Let's see if the film I have chosen also gets its message across. (laughs) Uh, Oh, Mick. We are watching my favourite, and I'm hoping yours, Wesley Snipes, in vampire flick Blade. Come on!
4: (gasps) Standard issue for all women.